welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, property rights, takings, and unions. And Richard, I wanted to talk today about a case that's come up before the Supreme Court uh, that is right in your sweet spot, an intersection of all the issues that rile you up. So this case is called Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid, and at issue here is that there is a regulation in California that requires farmers to let union organizers onto their property at certain times, subject to certain limits, as a way to promote uh, union membership for the workers there. And the, the legal issue that's being raised in this case is whether that constitutes a taking of private property. So, Richard, you are, you are the authority on all things takings, but I'm going to ask you to do some slow pitch here for us laymen. W- when the government actually confiscates someone's private property, it's easy enough to understand the concept of a taking. Explain for us what the law looks like in cases like this, where the issue is not the outright appropriation of private property, but placing conditions on its use? Well, this is an extremely complicated subject, uh, but it should be an extremely simple subject. So the way I'm going to start to explain it is to begin with the uh, what I think to be the correct notion. And what happens is there are two things that you have to worry about. One, what is it that the government has done to somebody? And if it turns out that you know what the common law definition of rights is, then any limitation on those kinds of rights will, in fact, amount as a taking. Uh, so that if you have a right to exclude and the government says that somebody can be included, uh, then there's a taking to the extent of the inclusion. Uh, the case becomes more complicated because it may well be that this is going to be justified. Uh, so certainly the government can put limitations on your house by requiring that you have, for example, fire extinguishers in the house or that you have fire alarm systems there. Uh, these would be intrusions upon your physical space, but it's basically a pretty tightly drawn thing uh, to make sure that fire is not going to spread and cause harm to your occupants or to your neighbors. Uh, So that's the way, and the more you take, the more you pay. Under this view, uh, Troy, there is no gap between what is called a regulatory taking and what is called a physical taking. Uh, A regulatory taking is simply taking a smaller fraction of the things uh, than is a physical taking. And in fact, the valuations are very, very tricky to make. The most famous case on the physical taking is a case called Loretto, and it involves somebody who was required to accept a cable box on his roof, and there was a huge debate over whether or not this was a physical intrusion that was subject to a quote-unquote per se rule. The Supreme Court held that it was. They sent the case back to New York, and they held that the princely amount that you were allowed to recover was $2 because they didn't care about the fact that the cable box allowed you to command revenues from your tenants. They simply treated it as a physical intrusion. So they got the valuation question wrong, as they so often do. But modern law then says if we don't take the property, uh, but we simply restrict the way in which you can lose, use it, 
Um, this is a mere regulation, and the justifications that the government can offer for mere regulations are very broad, including improving the character of a neighborhood and so forth. It's not just a protection against various kinds of nuisances. So in the very famous Penn Central case, if you said there were a set of considerations from not having a tower over the old Pan Am building, that was enough to say that the loss of air rights associated with that space, which were protected under state law, did not count as a taking. What makes this case kind of tricky is that everybody admits that it has to be on the physical taking side of the case because what happened under the California statute is that individuals were allowed to enter the particular apartment in order to organize for a union. So you couldn't exclude them. Uh, They were allowed to enter only three hours a day uh, for a period of something like, I think it's three or four months. So it's 120 days a year or 360 hours. The key feature about this statute, however, uh, was that it allowed the union to determine when it could come. And it put very loose limitations on what it could do once it started to arrive. And so the question then arose as to whether or not these physical entries were governed by the Loretto rule, which talked about placing, quote unquote, a permanent cable box. Did it apply to easements? To make it a little bit more complicated, there's a famous case called Nolan, in which Justice Scalia held that if the public had a permanent right to walk back and forth across your front lawn, that was a physical taking, and so therefore it was subject to the per se rule. Um, So we have to figure out whether or not when they make the entrance weaker than a permanent easement, is it still enough of a physical thing that you're going to say compensation is owing or not? And in the Supreme Court, Justice Kagan, for example, doubted whether or not this sporadic entry right would count as a physical taking, uh, but she didn't say what it did count as. It's certainly nobody's going to be indifferent between coming in and not coming in. So uh, the Supreme Court categories are all garbled. Uh, as I said, the simple approach is the more you take, the more you pay. And at this particular point, then, it would be both the time and the extent of the government Uh, authorized entry, coupled with what you can do once you get in there, because the claim is they made noise, they intimidated workers and so forth. And so from the taking side, at least, uh, this turns out to be something which I think would be compensable. Uh, But you asked about labor law and Troy, I have to tell you, you got to ask that question. What about the labor law, right? <laughs> You're asking your own questions at this point. I yes, am at this point, my Richard, friend. Give me, give me a second, right here. Three, two, one. What about the labor law, Richard? Ah, uh, three, two, one. <laughs> uh, the labor law is very different, and and it, it, these things are collided because the two bodies of law developed independently, and it was only after uh, we had some time that they came together. Uh, so uh, the labor law begins essentially with the following proposition. Uh, that management is not allowed to tell a union to go away. Uh, So uh, the preferred regime that I've always defended is nowhere expected today in the legal system. It's that all you have to do to keep a union out is to sell to your employees. You have a choice. If you want to join a union, you can't work for us. If you want to work for us, you can't join a union. Uh, Labor law puts a duty to bargain. And so at that particular point, freedom of contract is gone. And then you have to worry about the question as to whether or not when people refuse to deal, they've done so in good and bad faith, a test which is very difficult to apply, but strictly necessary under the circumstances. 
Well, if it turns out that you're forced to bargain, then how can you tell uh, the union that they can't enter the property? Because if you're going to suspend the freedom of contract documents, well, then you have to defend the, get rid of the exclusive rights. So back in as early as 1945, in a case called Republic Aviation, the Supreme Court kind of developed a balancing test, which says that yet unions are allowed to enter the property for organizing purposes, but they're not allowed to essentially disrupt the productive activities on the land. And so this meant that they could talk to workers in parking lots or during the lunch hour, but they couldn't go on to the assembly floor and interfere with the way in which production went, took place. So it was a straight-out balancing test. So if you come to this thing not from Loretto, but come from it from the labor side, then in effect, uh, entry is necessarily allowed, but it can be limited. And so the question you would then have is to look at the past cases in which workers were allowed to be approached by unions and see whether or not this one goes beyond it. And it turns out that it does. And so one of the ways that the Supreme Court looked at this case is to say, why are you raising all these fancy takings issues? You as a union are going to lose even if we do the kinds of balancing tests that existed central public aviation. And that was the line I think that Justice Kavanaugh took in sort of the argument. Uh, see, the key difference is um, in the other cases, it was fairly circumscribed as to when and how they could come in. In this particular case, all the union has to do is to give the employer notice as to when they tend to arrive and where they plan to go, and the employer is powerless to hold them out. That's a very different balance from the way in which these traditional cases have worked. And so, essentially, we can start having two ways to think about this case. Uh, the one way is to treat this as a Loretto-type taking, at which point you could slam the door on them unless the government pays to let these guys in, which would be a very big transformation because it would influence labor law everywhere else, including in situations like the Republican aviation case going back to 1945. Or you can say, no, it's a balancing test. And the California Agricultural Adjustment Act, which is patterned on the National Labor Relations Act, but covers agricultural workers, which are not covered under the National Labor Relations Act, um, they just got the wrong balance. Uh, so in one case, what happens is the employer is going to win on narrow grams and there are going to be very few ramifications for other areas. But on the other version, it turns out if any entry is going to be prima facie suspect, you start asking questions, well, what about rent control? After all, what happens is the tenant is out on his lease and he's allowed to remain in possession. Isn't that a physical occupation? Well, it is, uh, but the rent control statutes were upheld as early as 1921 in very different forms from what they are today. And and so what happens, we didn't have this physical, non-physical taking stuff back then. And so the great question is, with rent control and with labor law, do you recalibrate the doctrines that developed in the 20s and 30s to take into account the kind of conceptual things that started to develop in cases like Loretto, which date from the early 1980s? I want to ask, ask you actually about precisely this dynamic, but from a slightly different perspective, not the correct uh, policy or legal standard. But the way that you think about this strategically, if you're if you're bringing the case, so the Pacific Legal Foundation is representing the growers that are fighting this law. You saw in the case, as you alluded to in comments from Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, during oral, oral arguments, this sentiment that, you know what, you you guys can probably win this under a much more modest ruling. But you're trying to shoot the moon here. Kavanaugh literally said you're trying to get us to reinvent the wheel. So how do good constitutional lawyers perform the cost-benefit analysis there between when to aim for the more ambitious shift 
in precedent, maybe at the risk of losing the case, versus when to play it safer, even if it may not occasion a shift in the underlying jurisprudence that is as sweeping as you might hope? Well, in this particular case, I think the Pacific Legal Foundation did it correctly. Uh, What they did is they put both theories in front of the court. And, of course, the fact that you put both theories in front of the court means that there's going to increase probability of getting the small room win uh, rather than the big one. If you really went for the moon and didn't put the small one in, uh, you'd probably have a greater chance of getting it. But my sense is that they're better off doing the dual theories. And what they would hope for was a clear authoritative statement that the California rules have gone way too far, which indeed I think they have, and then hopefully get some kind of dicta in there which says that we're going to have to re-examine other situations in which it turns out that we also have to worry about um, exclusivity in the way in which various things start to happen. Uh, Because, you know, all labor statutes essentially acquire this. So if you have an anti-discriminant law, can you imagine somebody says, you have to hire people regardless of their race, but you don't have to let them on the premises. No, I mean, once you've hired somebody, they have to come in like every other worker. And so the moment you get rid of freedom of contract, you get rid of exclusivity. That's the key feature that you're going to have. Rent control is the obvious target that you're going to have to deal with. And then there's going to be the question of whether or not this stuff spills back from the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in California uh, to the federal statutes. How is this going to work out with respect to public employees? Uh, That was also an issue that we had in the Janus case. So all of this stuff is no doubt in flux because one of the things that the conservative members of the Supreme Court are quite determined to do is to cut back on what they think to be the extraordinary privileges that are associated with union status. And the way in which they do that is they kind of strip them of the various kinds of immunities that they've been able to get. At the same time, incidentally enough, in some courts, there's been an effort to work this in reverse. Uh, which is to get rid of the right-to-work laws. Uh, so there is a case involving um, uh, Mike Pence, um, Sweeney against Pence, in which Diane Wood wrote a very strong minority opinion saying, well, if you're going to tell the unions that they have to represent these workers and there's a right-to-work law in there, uh, then the state has to compensate the union for the work that it has to do on behalf of the workers, right? And so now what you do is you see very strong arguments trying to revolutionize the law from the other direction. And politically, it's going to get even more complicated because there's no doubt they won't get it through unless they change the filibuster rule, uh, that the Democrats are intent on trying to remove the federal positions of the, under the federal statutes, that is the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which gives the state the options to put right-to-work laws in place. Uh, what the Democrats would like to do is to get rid of that option so there are no right-to-work laws anywhere in the United States because uh, Joe Biden, if he's anything, is a very strong union man. Uh, so what we're seeing here are two very strongly conflicting currents, and it's not at all clear the way in which this thing will play out. Uh, but unions have been in real bad trouble. Um, they are in the private sector down to about 6% of the economy. They're even losing ground in the public sector. Uh, so manufacturers think that they really have a chance to stop this thing from happening. Employers are uniformly opposed to union. The Democratic administration is strongly in favor of them. The Supreme Court, well, we don't know. Um, I'll just make one observation about the Supreme Court. I think it's not a conservative versus liberal court anymore. I think it's three blocks of three. Um, So what you do is you have the three liberals who on this are going to be as one, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer. Then on the conservative side, uh, you're going to see 
um, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And in the middle, there is a conservative-leaning block, which is quite distinct from the other three, which is Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And so uh, the issue is which way the middle three will start to go. Um, they're more inclined to be conservative than liberal, uh, particularly on administrative law issues. But nobody knows the way this is going to play out in connection with takings or in connection with labor law, let alone the combination of the two fields together. Final question for you, Richard, more of a biographical one, I suppose. When you wrote your book on takings, you were considered a madman in some circles. This is a classic example of a set of ideas that started off seeming radical and then ended up really moving the debate. Um, it's it's not that your vision of this is completely won out in American law, of course, but they have had a gravitational pull that has brought the issue quite a ways in your direction. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that as a scholar, what, what it's like to take on an issue like that when your voice is a lonely one, and what it feels like to see that much of a shift occasioned by your work. Well, I mean, this is a very long story. You know, It's the last question. You could do an entire show on it, but let me see if I can kind of put it a little bit in perspective. Um, the way in which I described myself when I wrote the Takings book in 1985 was as an outsider. And I meant I had spent most of my life until that time dealing with various issues having to do with the acquisition of property, first possession rule, dealing with freedom of contract and its limitations, dealing with tort rules, dealing with trespass and interference with advantageous relationships. And all through the 1970s, I try to work all of this stuff out. And then starting in the early 1980s, I realized that I was looking at two sets of books. Every time you had a doctrine in private law that seemed to make sense and you got the public law, that doctrine seemed to be thwarted by one or another Supreme Court doctrine. And so the approach that I had was completely different from that of most American constitutional lawyers. I took a common law lens and applied it to uh, the government saying it's just like any other actor. And the only thing that it has that other people don't have is the ability to force an exchange of property for a public use upon payment of just compensation. If people are engaged in wrongful conduct like nuisances, they can enjoin it just the way a private party can do. And so I try to work all this stuff out. And, and what happened is originally I said, well, this is a kind of a modest endeavor. Uh, and then turns out every time I try to find a way to place a limit on my modest endeavor, it all broke down. And so the way the theory developed academically is you begin with the simplest case in which somebody makes an outright taking of somebody else's property. They deprive them of exclusive possession and necessarily of all use and all rights of disposition. And then the next question you start to ask is suppose they take some but not all of the sticks from the bundle of rights. And there are two ways to approach this. One is to say if you only take a little stick, it's not a taking at all. And that's the position that Justice Kagan took in the oral argument in the uh, Cedar case. Um, and the other position is to say, no, it's still a taking, but the only thing that changes is the valuation. And that was the position that the Pacific Legal Foundation took. And I came to the conclusion that it was right. And then what happened is you have to take the next step, which is to say, what do you do when it turns out there's a taking that the government has from many, many individuals, and then it turns out that the government supplies benefits to many, many individuals? And so what happens is you develop the theory of implicit in-kind compensation, which says that in some cases you take something from somebody, but you give them something else in exchange. So if it turns out that you impose limits on heights on one building, and it turns out you do it on the neighbor, if it turns out that both of them are left better off than before, it's a compensated taking rather 
rather than no taking at all. But if there's a wealth shift between the two parties, then in fact, compensation has to be given for the difference. And as you started to work this thing out, what happened is every major doctrine that you saw in public law dealing with zoning type issues, rent control type issues, growth issues, even in intellectual property, they all seem to come out upside down. So when I wrote the book, I got the page 271 or something like this. Oh, by the way, if this theory is right, the New Deal is unconstitutional. And it is unconstitutional if it's right, because it turns out the labor statutes require a physical taking, and there's no just compensation that's given, no reciprocal advantage anywhere else, no anti-nuisance police justification for it, so it's over. So I put it forward, and then in 1986, there's a conference on my book, which was held at the University of San Diego, uh, which was eventually published in the University of Miami Law Review, and I was hit on two sides. On the conservative side, there were two libertarians, Ellen Paul and Eric Mack, and both of them said, why do you allow any takings at all? In a libertarian world, uh, the only time that you can stop somebody else is when they're using force against you. That's not this. I said, well, ours is not a libertarian constitution. It's a classical liberal constitution because it authorizes takings for public use upon payment of just compensation, however those terms to be defined. And on the other side, there were a group of liberals who had conniption fits about everything that I wrote. Uh, so the late Joe Sachs began his book review at that conference with the following sentence. Like a shaggy dog, he said, this dog will, this book will tempt every passerby to give it a kick. It's devoid of logic, theory, history, and so forth. And, you know, Mark Hellman mused out loud, why would a man like Paul Batour want to join the Chicago faculty, even have to have Richard Epstein as a columnist, and Tom Gray wrote something to the effect that this was a Methusian constitution, and that um, it should be published by some oddball press, but not by the Harvard University Press, and so forth. So I got a very warm reception. But the key thing about this is the integrity intellectually of the position was never attacked. It was so-called outlandish preclusion. Uh, so I developed, you know, standard theories of constitutional interpretation, relentlessly applied them. And I think that the, uh, the frame is there. Uh, yes, I think it has had some influence on the world. It started actually even in the Reagan administration when people started to say, well, what he's saying about takings may inform the way in which we internally review various kinds of processes. And the theory keeps growing. Uh, as I like to say about the book, as I said, if you write a book and it's refuted once, you're in deep trouble. But if you write a book and it's refuted 25 times, you're in great shape because it, <laughs> because it means that every one of the previous 24 reviewers haven't even pleased the 25th guy who's come along. And, and so the book essentially stands there. And what you now have to look is to see whether or not somebody's developed a theory of, of equal comprehensive nature uh, that I have, which comes out with the opposite result. And I think it's pretty clear that they haven't. And if you start looking at the literature, this is what you start to see. You start to see, oh, my God, if we follow Epstein's theory, then we can't do any of the things that we want to do under the New Deal. So we're willing to live with the complete intellectual incoherence that we have when we start to try to draw lines under the current law between physical takings on the one hand. It's all a balancing test that we really don't call it works. We would rather do that. And who was the leading exponent of this? It's kind of interesting. It was Nino Scalia. Now, we had many debates when he was alive over this subject. And his attitude was he started first with judicial restraint as a constraint on what courts could do. And so he was not inclined to give broad provisions and constitutions, broad interpretation. 
And so what he was doing, he tried to find a way to stop it by uh, the physical taking doctrine. Uh, he tried to write something in the Nolan case that would stop it. In the Lucas case, none of it really worked. Then he would try standing doctrine. And I just kept on saying there, look, if you're an originalist and you have a broad text, you can't give it a narrow interpretation and claim fidelity to law. And then he said, but the world will come to an end. And, you know, as I said when I was writing my book, tell me the kinds of things that are essential for security that you cannot run under my conception of the police power. I mean, you're not going to allow people to commit mayhem, force, fraud, abuse, nuisance, and so forth. What you have to do, however, is to make sure that these systems are going to operate in a way that does not necessarily unnecessarily intrude on the way in which private property systems are organized. And so I still stand by the takings book. It's 35 plus years now since it's come out. I think there are points of detail which I would change. Uh, One big issue that I never talked about that, and I talked about it later, was so-called issue of unconstitutional condition. The government is now not regulating you, it's granting you something. The questions are there limitations on freedom of contract that apply to the government in virtue of its monopoly position. And the attitude that I eventually took is you want to understand this, you better understand the antitrust laws because they deal with private monopolies. And so I wrote a book called Bargain in a State that did it. And the two things together are comprehensive theory. And so when I start seeing cases like this, Um, I'm always pleased to be able to show just how complicated it is to try to work them out within the existing framework and how pretty straightforward they are within the other framework. And although uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation did not cite my book, at least I don't recall them citing it, uh, when they started to say uh, that the takings issue is relatively clear and the valuation issue is that all that matters when it comes to the question of what these guys did when they got in there, that was absolutely a leaf from the earlier takings book. I'm most pleased that such astute lawyers were prepared to put that argument forward, and I wish the Supreme Court would take it with the seriousness that it deserves. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.